Welcome to Shine Online with Ellie Swift. I'm your host, marketing and mindset coach, Ellie Swift, here to help you connect with your clients, create life-changing results in your online business, and shine neon bright online. I built a multi-six-figure business in under two years and, more importantly, have supported my clients to get amazing results. My clients have generated five- and six-figure launches, tripled their income, and completely transformed their lives using my signature framework, the Swift Marketing Method. In this podcast, I take you a layer deeper into my business, my life, and my mind. If you're an ambitious entrepreneur, you're in the right place. Let's get started. I am so excited to introduce you to my beautiful friend, beloved past client, and magical human being, Madison Morrigan. Madison is a four-time international award-winning life coach, host of Everything Belongs, the podcast, speaker, creator of Awaken Her Soul, a 14-week mentorship program designed to help women embody their worth, power, and fullness. Centered on self-responsibility and full expression, Madison coaches ambitious and creative women as they shed layers of old programming, keeping them small, and finally come home to their true selves. She has also released a brand new incredible business program called Serve It Up. I've had the privilege of working with Madison multiple times now, and we've both grown really alongside one another in this online space for years. I have so much respect for the way that Madison does business, life, and everything in between. And in fact, Madison recently had me on her podcast and I spoke about building a million dollar mindset, which was an epic episode. Definitely check that out if you haven't already over at Everything Belongs. In this episode, we chat to building your business when you don't have examples of people doing similar work around you, being strategic and even knowing what that means when it's your first time in business, the beliefs and characteristics that Madison's had to embody to build a multi six-figure business, misconceptions in the online business world, and so much more. I know you are going to love this episode as much as I did. Enjoy. Okay, so something that I love so much about you is that when you started your business, you did not have any business background. So can we start there? Tell me, like, what did you think business looked like when you first started and how has that shifted? Well, it does need to be said that both of my, my mom and my stepdad own businesses growing up. And so if you count every sick day, having to go to work with my mom to clean houses, mm-hmm. technically I had uh, work ethic and 
not having sick days where I actually take off. So I'm not even sure if that's a, a benefit. So I did have that context to see my parents do blue collar work. My stepdad owned an HVAC company, heating and air conditioning, and my mom owned a cleaning business, but she never actually would introduce herself by saying, I own a business. She would always say, I clean houses just to, so you understand like the, the consciousness that she was in around her own worth. And so it was never something that felt like a big deal to have a business. And yet it wasn't, um, I wasn't really someone who was told to like go after the really big thing, go after making a lot of money. It was like, you're going to work really hard. It's going to be torturous or is it torturous, treacherous, both. Long story short, I graduated college with an interpersonal communication degree, and I wanted to be a sex therapist. And at the time I was married and I, my partner needed to go to college because we couldn't afford for both of us to go at the same time. So I started working, I was waitressing and I had a job as a receptionist, which I was terrible at, but it really got me through. So during that time I was, you know, supporting my ex-partner and found life coaching and just kind of thought like, well, this seems like a fun way that I could be doing something until I go get my master's Mm -hmm. and starting to explore like nutrition coaching. I got really into health. I was in an MLM at the time that was around health. And I was, I was really excited about helping people, but really bad at the business side. Like I wasn't, I wasn't making money off of it. Like I think the most ever made was like a thousand dollars a month, like the best. And I was very proud of that, but I didn't necessarily have the business skills. It was on pure excitement and adrenaline that that even happened. And so starting the coaching business I feel like in some ways I didn't realize I was starting at such a deficit at the time. I was living in a very Christian community. They didn't believe in therapy. They didn't believe in coaching. They believed in prayer and that's it. And like go to church. And so I was doing something that the people in my community didn't believe in. So I didn't have a network of people to even sell what I was doing to or who would support my business. And I was also like waitressing and at you know, supporting my ex-partner through college. And so we didn't have disposable income. We literally had to start an Etsy shop to pay for Beautiful You, which is where you and I met. And um, I had like a blog at the time. And I had, a, I had a friend who was very successful at blogging. I was not. Like, I was like, here's a craft I made. It's like, okay. And she has like millions of views. And she's actually my photographer. So my entire website now is like her work. So I, I saw people doing well. But it was business sense. It was like hustle, do things for free, share the journey online and just try to find people that I connect to. And I was very thankful to have the online world, especially people in different parts of the world who had different experiences because it really expanded my worldview at the time. I hadn't been out of the country. My worldview was quite small. I thought like only certain beliefs were true. And so starting the business was, I guess, a it felt more like a personal growth experience at that time than it really did feel like I'm starting a business and I'm going to make money. I think I've shared with you that my biggest goals were to eat organic because I couldn't afford to. And within 10 years, my goal was to make $30,000 a year. Like that was my 10 year goal. So to me, I was dreaming big, but I wasn't necessarily dreaming as big as I would say I am now. What does dreaming big look like now? Well, financially, since I brought up the financial piece, $30,000 a year, 
you know, I understand that a lot of people have to live off of that. I would like myself and so many others to live off of so much more than that. And I would like to be making like minimum $500,000 a year with ease with like, it's no big deal. Like, of course I am. And then anything more than that is like fun to play with because I have done the math on what, how much money it would take to give me the lifestyle and then so much more. And 500,000 would give me so much more than I would ever need. And then that feels like where the play could come in. Like I could play so much with that money. And so, and that's personal income. So I don't just mean business, but I mean like personally, I would like to be making them much as an individual and playing big looks like having the space to really write and make something creatively for myself. So much of this work has been to serve other people. And I love that. And I will always be doing that. But I think a lot of us are realizing after COVID that spaciousness and freedom is so much better than a busy life and a lot of money. And what I love from all those examples is that I know that you're living so much of this already, that 500,000 is not that far away. And the space to write and create, like you're so conscious of that right now. And, and that's something that I think is so amazing. And so just while we're on that thought, and then I want to go back to early days of business. Would you have any advice for somebody who is really conscious of that vision that they want, but they're not yet there? Because what you just said was, that you're already integrating that so much into your life in different ways. Like, how do you do that? How do you manifest what you want now? I would ask a very provocative question and say, how do you know you don't already have it? And that would reveal in a coaching session so much about where the person would need to make some shifts or where there's perceived lack. And that could be really, really interesting because that's the first place my brain goes is like, ooh, how can we dig into that belief that you don't already have it? So that could be really fun. How do you do it? I am strategic. So I'm not just someone who like is like, I set an intention and then I get it. I, I do fact. get very clear on what I want. And I do it often. I do it every year in a big way. I like you. I actually booked the hotel because you booked the hotel. I was like, that's amazing. I was already doing my like day ritual. And I really, after COVID, I was like, I need a vacation, <laughs> but I couldn't go on vacation. So I booked a hotel in my, my city and it felt so good. But normally I'll like go on a little trip and in the airplane, I'll like do my, my time of like, what do I want to achieve this year? What do I want to see happen? And I get really clear on my values because if it doesn't happen through my values and through what that means to me, so I will write out my values, write out what my values mean to me. What do they look like in my business? What do they look like in my relationships? And what do I want and why do I want it? And that's really important for me because I have manifested things from my ego that I wish that I had not manifested and it came rather quickly. <laughs> so I'm learning to just be a little bit like to check myself and I incorporate prayer into it. It's really a big deal for me to say like, and also like thy will be done to something greater because I don't always know what's best for me, even though like I do in this moment, but I've been wrong so many times. So I'm always open to being wrong. And I think the biggest piece of it, as far as how I've learned to create what I want is to have a neutral energy around it. What I want to feel about the reality I get is, oh, of course, 
of course I have this. Of course, these are my clients. Of course, this much money in the bank. Of course, I feel like this when I'm with my partner. Because when it doesn't feel like, oh, of course, when it doesn't feel like home, then it feels like something that either you don't deserve. And so there's a worthiness piece that's really important that when we're still hustling, improving our worth and when it's a desire that's outside of us, we have to do something to get it, or we believe that we're not already who should have it. So there's a lot of programming there. And so the sooner we can feel like, of course, someone like me with all the identities I hold from the background I come from, of course, I would have this, the easier it is to see the opportunities and to align ourselves with the people, the opportunities that it could be possible. So I I believe in the spiritual side of manifestation, but I also believe it's so practical in that you don't see the opportunities that you don't believe are for you. We have the exact same views on this process. I think that there's so much misinformation out there about manifestation that it really is that just allow and sit and wait and it will happen. And I think that in doing so, we're almost like discrediting our personal ability as part of the process. It's like, no, actually we can make shit happen. You know, we like, we have a lot of power in this. Like I really see it as that co-creation and that thing where it's like, well, well, what power do I have here? Because even just exercising that power personally and taking those actions gives us a lot of proof that then helps us to believe we can over and over again. Right. And so I'm curious to know though, you know, like you said before with someone, you know, that holds the identities that I do, like, How did you expand into what you have with not having people around you that have what you now have? Like, where did you find those examples? What did that look like? How did you believe that to be true? I found a lot of those examples online because I didn't know a lot of people in my hometown. I'm not, I don't live in my hometown, but like in the town that I've lived for a long time who shared my values and made the money I wanted to make and and had the impact I wanted to make. A lot of people where I I live, it's like, if you're going to be spiritual, you have to be broke. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to serve people, you're probably annoying. There's all these like, you know, beliefs about it. So online was really the first place. And I found a lot of online relationships. And in a way I like created a vision for what I wanted via finding, I think what people are saying now was expanders. Those people who are, they're saying it's possible, but people also who I didn't feel were too different than me that I could make an excuse that it wasn't possible for someone like me. So the moment I would hear myself say, oh, well, that's not fair because they married someone rich or because they have this parent or because, you know, I could hear myself starting to make the disqualifiers of what made me so different that I wasn't able to get what they had. And so finding people who shared identities to me was really important. And then also having people, of course, who, who didn't, but could provoke me enough to shake up some of the programming, because I think that's important too. Like some people were like just perfect enough to be like, okay, why do I have these opinions? Why do I feel this way about these people? And kind of shook loose some of the programming I had, but it's also a big value of me to like not leave people behind. So I wasn't someone who just cut out everyone who was different than me out of my life. And that could have maybe accelerated how fast all this happened for me, but it wouldn't have been in alignment for what was true for me. I really respect that. And something that I think you are so, so good at is not being afraid to 
uh, like ask yourself those questions of why am I drawn to these people? Like, what is it about them that I can see in myself? And I think, you know, the word you used there was like provocative. It's like just allowing yourself to go to those places to keep expanding because it's fucking hard to do so. And it requires you to go to the edge of your comfort zone again and again and again and again. And you do that so beautifully. And I think that that's a really admirable trait and also something that is a learned behavior. Like, I don't think that that's something that that we innately have or we innately don't. I think anyone can create that for themselves. Do you agree with that? I think that some people come in with dispositions that feel more open. And I think that that's something that we can learn, but I think that some people have more openness. And I think the more open someone is, the more likely they are going to be to take risks. Mm -hmm. And that's for the better or for the worse, really. So that can be honed, but also... I mean, that's why we do work like this to hire coaches or evaluate whether it's our programming or how we were raised or the way we came in, because there can be support, even if you don't have like a level of openness to experience or to change where I feel like there's a a willingness to surrender. That's always been quite easy for me. And I don't observe that that's necessarily easy for others. I don't know if it's necessarily that I came in that way. I did have a very challenging childhood. And I think a certain level of adversity, although certainly has its impacts because trauma has, when, when not looked at and not healed has detrimental impacts because I, at the time I became a coach really invested in my own trauma healing. I think I was able to alchemize. And I think people who have trauma specifically in childhood have a unique ability to alchemize difficulty and have a lot of resiliency. And so I do think that there's a level of resiliency and openness that comes from adversity that although I don't wish adversity on anyone, a lot of us have it. And that when we lean into healing, it allows for a certain ability to know that things that happen are going to pass through you if you don't, whenever you allow them and you don't get them stuck in your system and make them mean something about you. Because before, I mean, before my trauma healing, I certainly believed everything bad meant that it was because I was bad. But through that work, there's an ability to show up and know that you might fail or whatever, you know, whatever your definition of failure is, and you'll be okay because you've been okay before. And I think that can be cultivated. And I don't think you have to have gone through trauma. I just think those of us who have, uh, have a kickstarted opportunity (laughs) to know about it. Totally. And well, it's, choosing how you're going to take that experience and where it's going to lead you to next. And so, mm-hmm. so witnessing you deciding that those experiences are going to support you to go to places that you want to go to rather than keeping you stuck and stagnant. Like, I think that that's such a, a beautiful message because mm-hmm. I think that um, so often people think the antithesis is true or like the opposite is true, right? It's like, well, because I've experienced trauma, it's more challenging for me. That can be true until we heal. I'm so grateful to see, like whenever I first started healing, I didn't know about trauma. I didn't know about high ACE scores, adverse childhood experiences. I didn't know about any of that whenever I started going to see an energy 
trauma worker at 23. I kind of just found myself there because a friend was like, you have trauma. And I was like, I have trauma. Like, no, I don't. Like someone had to tell me like, you're not okay. And I am so grateful at the accessibility of that now. And I think COVID actually made it even more accessible in some ways because so many people went online and there are, there's definitely a shadow side to the therapeutic online industry, but I think I don't know that there's ever been a time where there's more resources, which I find incredible. And so you were healing and building a business in a town where you didn't have pre-established community. Coming back to something you said earlier, what I really want to know there is, because this is something that comes up so often with clients who are in early stages of business is how did you then generate clients? How did you start to build that community and those relationships and therefore build your business? Can you take us through practically what that looked like? Yeah. And I want to even be clear that I had had community Mm -hmm. in a very religious environment that I had chosen to leave and then lost that community I'd been building for five or six years. And so that was definitely full of grief, but for for my benefit, that is for certain. But at that time, I think I felt like I had lost a lot. And so I didn't feel like there was as much to lose. Like I felt really tenacious and really passionate. So I posted, I posted on social media twice a day for two years. And that was Instagram, Facebook at the time. There wasn't, I never did Twitter. Maybe I tried for like a week. I wasn't very good at keeping it to a short amount of characters. I committed to writing a a blog post a week, which, you know, I look back, they're terrible. They're terrible. But I, you know, I did it and I committed to weekly newsletters. And I actually remember how excited I was when I hit 100 newsletter subscribers that I emailed Julie Parker and let her know that I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe this many people are listening to what I have to say. And I did that for three years, four years. I mean, I slowed down the Instagram posts as I gained clients just because I had actual work to do then. I was like, oh, now I have clients to have um, and serve. But I collaborated at every opportunity I could. I literally contacted every yoga studio in town, asked if I could host free workshops, asked if I could do a workshop for their staff, asked if they could give me a testimonial afterwards. I like look back and I'm just like, wow, I commend how bold I was because that is scary. And I don't know that I felt fully how scary it is, but I, if I was to tell someone to do that now, I would be like, oh, that's a lot but I didn't feel like it was a lot at the time. I just felt like it was what I needed to do to do what I wanted to do. And most of my first clients came via Instagram. I think I did a couple like free coaching call giveaways, like full free coaching calls and was like, share it, you know, if you want to enter type thing. And I got my first few clients from that. And then within a year I had 18 one-on-one clients. I just had goosebumps hearing you talk about that. If we can just pick apart that, like dive into that for a moment, because Mm -hmm. if there's anyone that's listening, that's in the building stages of your business, there's so much that you just said that is like so noteworthy and take on and do worthy. (laughs) 
So first of all, the tenacious and passionate that you said you were when you first started, I um just random side note, I did an article for, um, I was interviewed for Medium, their authority magazine, and they asked me what I thought the biggest traits, the best traits of entrepreneurs were, and two of the things I said were tenacious and passionate. And so it just gave me goosebumps when you said that because that tenacity, that passion, the third one I said was resilient. And mm. I just think that we really have to anchor into all of those like big, bold words. Like we have to be the embodiment of that when we're starting. We have to anchor into our deepest, deepest self-belief. And so thank you for not beating around that and like taking us straight there with that. From those things, the things that I would pull out that you did so well was you were consistent as fuck and I'm so over consistency getting such a bad rap and I know you and I have had this conversation before like consistency doesn't mean that you have to like go against your human design it doesn't mean you have to do things that you don't want to do it just means continually showing up in the way that serves and supports you over and over again because if you want to be a coach you need to be consistent with your clients like if you have an issue with consistency go and fucking start another business. Like, you know, because if you're a service provider, you have to consistently show up and serve your people. And so that's why I think this relationship to consistency that people are talking about, I'm like, if you can't be consistent for free, then your people are not going to see how you're going to be consistent for them. That reliability is so key. And You also mentioned that when you didn't have clients, essentially you were treating those hours as though you did. So you were showing up constantly in those hours that you would go go to serve clients with business building activities, which I think is so important. And the final thing that I love also is such a divisive topic around doing free coaching calls. Anyone that's listening to this that has worked with me, coach with me knows I'm a really big fan of doing those when you're starting out because the conversion rate on those, if you know how to do them and you've kind of got that, that right for you can be really huge and transformative and amazing. And so, so many things you shared there are literally things to take and replicate the benefit is is still paying off. Like some of those clients are still in my orbit. My first client that I ever coached for free hired my girlfriend last month. That was seven years ago. And now she's like gone through my programs and is like, I want to learn about yoga therapy and is investing in my partner's work. It's just like, because I treated her like a real client, not just like, oh, I'm going to half-ass this because I'm doing this for free. Like I also wanted to practice and I was so earnest of doing a good job. And so earnestness is like one of the qualities that I like struggle with about myself the most. It's like, I'm like, oh, it's so vulnerable to be so earnest, but I'm grateful looking back at the younger version of me because she was just like, she wanted it and it was full vulnerable and it was out there. And I commend anyone who's willing to do that because it is it can be challenging. It can push you at your edges. Okay. So you, you were doing those calls for free and you were building your client base from there. You had 18 clients within the year. Can you pinpoint a moment your business truly took off? And when I say took off, even defining what took off meant, because it might be income related. It might be the moment it felt more easeful and natural. And you were like, okay, I've arrived in like a flow of what this business gig is. What, what did that look like? Because I I often feel like there is a turning point for people. 
Yeah, I think it was year three because the first year, I actually just looked at these numbers recently in January of the first year. It was like, there were a couple months before that I had launched my business in August. So January is when I started like tracking my income. So I was like, oh, and it was like $300. <laughs> so I'm talking about like January of like 2016, $300. And um, by the end of the year, I had my first $5,000 month because I had, I did a promotion that December for the new year and had booked on 18 clients and then quit my job. And that job was actually, I was working at a fitness studio as the last job of the jobs that I was holding on to. Cause that year I worked four jobs and coached. And so by December of that first year, I like let go of that job. And that felt like a really big deal also, because like you mentioned, I was healing and my boss was a true narcissist and an addict and really, really mean to me. And I, I didn't really realize the impact it had on my mental health. And so being able to quit that job and have just space away from people who had been abusive was a huge deal for me. And so I went on like that with one-on-one -on -one clients for two years. And in the fall of that, like second year, I did a group program and I called it Awaken Alive and I charged like $600 for like 12 calls or something ridiculous. But I was like, it's a beta. It's fine. You know, it's still like major undercharging and like not really making enough money to like thrive by any means, but I had enough clients to feel like I was tapped out. And through, I, I wrote the content as I went and really shaped it around these people and realized that I had a really quality group program. I'd had enough clients that I was like, I've mapped out my client journey. Like it, it occurred to me that I had worked with so many people in that three years that I knew very keenly what, I guess what you would call like my, is it the formula? What would you call it? Your value ladder. Yeah. Yes. I knew exactly how I could tell someone what was going to happen on call four. I could tell someone what was going to happen on call six at that point. And I was like, this is, I, I get chills now. Cause I was like, this is a big deal. Oh, your signature process. Yeah. yeah. Yes. My signature yeah. process. I didn't know values ladder, but signature process. I was like, yes, I, I can map and walk this through. And that was three years in was the first time I hired a business coach. And so I hired a business coach for 90 days and they helped me create that pathway that I had created and the program I had created. And they helped me market it in a way that could free up some of my time because I had so many clients that I was getting to the point of burnout and realized I was really actually excellent at group coaching. I had been hosting circle since like middle school in the church. So I was like really skilled at it. It was my college degree was in, I was like, oh my gosh. And then, um, in February of that year is when I launched awaken her soul. Mm -hmm. And so that would be three years in business. That was my first six figure year. And I was able to just like go on trips suddenly, like all the things that my friends had, you know, who had careers and were starting to build their careers and were making more money than me um, and had benefits. I was like, oh my gosh, I can have insurance now. Like I can go on trips now. And I feel like that was a really, for my self-esteem, that was a really big deal to be able to do the things I felt like I had seen the people that I had been looking to doing and all my friends doing and was like, let's go to Marfa, Texas. Like, let's go on a, a girl's trip. And I was able to finally go on the trips I really wanted. And then that year, I also won Beautiful You as International Coach of the Year. And that felt like, I was like, oh, I don't have to prove my place here anymore. Because I think I had been so young and so inexperienced. I was really carrying a lot of that proving energy. And I'm actually really good at this. And I actually can like eat organic food now. And I bought a Vitamix <laughs> and that felt like I was the richest person in the entire world. Oh, 
Oh, I've just, I've got like full body goosebumps and I'm teary. I'm a sucker for like all of those stories. I remember being in the room when you won International Coach of the Year. You were wearing that red dress that made you look like the dancing girl emoji. Remember? (laughs) I think I took a boomerang of you. I was like, oh my gosh, you're the dancing girl emoji. I was like, we need to do a boomerang immediately. You shared a speech and it was just this beautiful moment of just witnessing you as somebody who, I hate the word self-made, I'm, I'm not into it as a term, but as somebody who I guess was so self-sovereign in her success, like you just, you decided you were tenacious, you continued the path and it's just such a beautiful thing to witness. You're, you're so inspiring in the way that you show up and operate from that place and it's almost like you operate as though it's a non-negotiable, like how else would I be? I appreciate you saying all of that because it doesn't feel like it did then. Mm-hmm. At that point, it all felt like a hustle still. Yeah. And um, it doesn't feel like that anymore, but I'm so grateful for all it took to get to that point. I really do believe that there's a time where things shift. Like we we start out and with that tenacity and that passion, it goes into like the hard work of building and things do shift at some point. And I think that where the hard work conversation is is getting misconstrued is people are associating hard work as something that's not enjoyable. But it's like if you want a business that you really, really want you're going to go through a period of hard work, but like that term hard work gets to be what you want it to be. Like I remember having days where, yes, I was working hard, but it felt so blissful and so expansive and just all those good things because I was literally in flow and in a zone of doing work that I truly, truly loved. What are your thoughts on that hard work conversation? I had such a good time. Mm. You know, I... I do feel grateful. I did martial arts and dance growing up and was very, very disciplined and diligent as a child. Like I had to iron my own uniforms for three days a week and was very, like, I wanted to be there. My sisters dropped out and I was like, no, like I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a black belt. You know, I was very, very into it. And I, I have always been somewhat that way that whatever I'm into, I'm into in a way that like nothing else almost exists. And so I don't know that that's a great quality because a lot of things can go to the wayside. Like in life, I have to be very mindful of whatever I'm into, not letting it be the only thing that exists, but I love working. I was actually at a yoga retreat two weeks ago. I went on, I took myself on a solo retreat, which there were people there, but no one in my daily life was there. And we were doing yoga and something that Holly Kreps, who's my, one of my mentors was saying is she said, if your joints hurt, stop. If your muscles hurt, enjoy the work. Mm. And I feel like that about, um, aligned work, work that's really good for us is like, if it's painful in a way that's causing harm to your body, then you're not doing it in alignment. Like speaking from like the yoga, you're not actually in physical alignment. You're going beyond your capacity and the body shows that so easily. Like if, if you are holding yourself in a posture that you can't do an integrity to your structure, then you're hurting yourself. But if you can do it with integrity to your structure and it's just a little hard, 
then that's where the magic happens. And I remember thinking that week, I was like, oh my gosh, like, cause I haven't been to fitness classes because of COVID. I was like, I miss this. I feel like I feel great. And I felt like on a high. That is so good. I've, I've never heard it described with, with a more accurate metaphor. I just think that that's so juicy and so brilliant and will resonate so much with clients. So I just love that you shared that. Thank you so much for doing so. I'm mindful of time. I just want to finish up with, and we've talked about it a lot as we've talked through strategy, but I just want to ask specifically about mindset and the role mindsets played in your business. And I guess my question here would be, what would be the number one piece of advice in relation to mindset that you would give anybody who is building their business? I will say that that week I was at that yoga retreat, we had philosophy classes and something that was talked about is how in a certain pathway of yoga, the ego, the body, the mind, they're all thought to be the same thing. Like when they say mind, they also mean body. They also mean everything that isn't soul. And that is very much how I think of mindset because your mindset is in the way you hold your body. Your mindset is in what you're doing first thing in the morning. It is everywhere. It's not, you change your mindset, you change your life. It's your mindset is your life. If you feel nervous, look at your body. Your body looks nervous. And if your body is not looking nervous, even though you're nervous, you're probably holding tension somewhere in your body that you're disguising it, but it's affecting you. I agree with you so much. I've actually got a post written that it will probably go out before this episode comes out where um, there's something I've been seeing shared online about like embodiment is the new mindset. And (laughs) I'm such a big fan. I'm such a big fan of marketing obviously. Um, and so I can, I can recognize a clever point of difference and I'm here for it. And I read that and I'm like, it's the same thing. It's one and the same. Like when I'm talking about mindset, I'm talking about that mind body integration. And so looking at it from that place, it's like, it's all one rather than it being, okay, let's create separation in our mind and like pit them against one another. And that becomes the story. So thank you for sharing that view. I love it so much. I spoke to my friend, Hillary McBride, who's a doctor of psychology, and I've had her on my podcast and she has so many opinions about the embodiment movement that are really interesting because she's like, embodiment isn't just dancing on Instagram. It's also peeing when you have to and Mm -hmm. eating when you're hungry that's embodiment. Are you hearing what your body is saying and responding to your needs? And I, I feel like that was such a generous view and lens considering the marketing around embodiment. Like I love to dance. I love a good dance video, but it's not necessarily embodiment. Sometimes it's performance and you can't feel your body. Yes. So all of that to be said, something Hillary and I spoke about at a retreat that we hosted right before lockdown in Hawaii, which is like longing to go back to that, um, or to the future in Hawaii, not back. Don't want to experience COVID again, (laughs) but into the future in Hawaii. Um, we talked about a lot of my work is about the stories we tell and the programming that we have. And she, you know, I was feeling at the time, like, I just, you know, this embody, we were having the conversation, like, is embodiment better? Like, is it, you know, am I missing something? And she's like, it doesn't matter if you start at the story, someone has to believe that they're worthy of the change. Someone has to believe that the change is possible consciously Mm. before they will allow it. 
or I guess even unconsciously, but the belief has to be there. The story has to be there. And so if you're starting with mindset and it's like just switching up the stories you're telling yourself, you won't, your body won't allow yourself to even have the experience if there isn't a belief that it's even possible. And that's why we talked about the people that I looked at who were already living it because it was cultivating an unconscious belief for me to be like, it's okay if I do that. And so, and then again, of course, like make those decisions show up as though it's true. And I think we're like really going full circle here with manifestation because that's really all manifestation is. I just agree so deeply with that. And so ultimately it's like, let's not create disconnection. Like let's, let's blend it all together. (laughs) Like let's integrate all of this and it's almost like disconnecting the concepts means disconnecting them within your body and therefore getting nowhere. Like, like you say, that performative dance piece, it's like, well, if we're believing embodiment as like, this is the surface level of what it is, and this is what embodiment looks to be true. And we're forgetting everything else, but actually getting embodiment wrong. Having a partner who's a yoga therapist, whose entire work is embodiment. It's been really fun to see them merging in our like you know, in our clearly, I've, I've used some examples from that world here because sometimes we think it. We think mindset is just like, well, think about it differently. But if there's no change in behavioral pattern, if there's no change in the way that your body moves about your life, I'm not saying whenever I say your body changes, I don't mean like you your weight necessarily changes. Although sometimes that happens for people, they become, you know, they feel like they can nourish themselves, and so they look like they're nourishing themselves. That can happen. But if there's not a change in anything besides like whatever mindset is, like cool, you changed your belief and nothing's changing about your life. And I doubt that your belief actually changed. I so agree. I, I always, so I talk about it as like, you've got the mindset line and the strategy line and people think that mindset work is just sticking with this mindset line. But so often we have to move the strategy line forward first. And that is actually what shifts the mindset. And so if we treat the two as like, which lever am I pulling on rather than just going, Oh, it's a mindset thing. And therefore it just, we're just focusing on mindset. It's like, well, that actually won't do anything. So practical example, it's like, well, if I'm really afraid to show up online, we might tell ourselves the story of, I need to do heaps of mindset work around that. Or we actually start showing up online and our mindset shifts really quickly. I love how um, no matter what pathway you take, if you want to journal about it, if you want to just do it, if you want to feel it in your body first, like they're all really valid pathways to take to the same thing. Yes. Is there anything in this conversation that we haven't covered that you would want to end with? I didn't mention, I had a group of friends who they served as expanders for me in a really different way. It wasn't about businesses or anything like that, but I had come from that really you know, very conservative circle and where people were quite negative about dreams and everything that I was doing. And I had a circle of friends who really knew how to live well. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking like wine at dinner, going to concerts, going to parties that gave me a reason to want to do something outside of work because work had really become like a solace for me through so much of the things I experienced in the church that, you know, work became the thing I was focusing all my energy on. And when I finally made that six figures that allowed me to like quit so much of the hustle. I am so grateful that I had people who really showed me how to live well, because it would be such a bummer to be making good money and not know how to live well. 
Oh yes. What, what a note to leave this conversation on. Where can we find you? Lovely lady. I'm always on Instagram and my website and my podcast. So my name is Madison Morgan and it's Morgan, like the Irish goddess, not the first name. So double R I G A N. And then my podcast is called everything belongs. And if you just type my name, you'll probably find it in Apple um, or wherever you listen to podcasts. But if you follow on Instagram and like go to my website, you'll find everything that you'd want. Thank you so much for being here and for having this conversation with me. I adore you so much. I think you're such an incredible, incredible human. And I really, really cherish our conversations. And I just love your brain. I think I've said this to you before. I love your brain. It's a privilege to get to work with you and be alongside you in this lifetime. That is so nice. I feel so full. Thank you so much. It's such an honor. 